Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. As we're turning there, just a reminder. Uh, well, first of all, welcome to Redeemer Bible Church. I'm glad that you're with us this morning, either in person or online. Trust that if you're online that you can one day join us here in person and uh, we can truly fellowship uh, the way God intends for us uh, as a body. Uh, but we pray that God's presence would be with you uh, during this time. Uh, also reminding you to uh, come if you're a member of this or if you're a member of this church today, uh, we have a members meeting. I like to call it family meeting instead of members meeting because that's what it is. That's what we are. We're not just members of a club. We're family. Members of a body. So uh, if you're a member, <clears throat> please come tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to be talking about some things uh, that God has for us. Um, looking back and looking forward uh, to this year, what God would have for us. And it's just usually a wonderful time. We'll have refreshments uh, for you as, as well, so that you can endure that time. But it's always a sweet time. Uh, and if you're, you've been visiting us and um, participating with us week to week, uh, I want to encourage you to pray and seriously consider being a member here at Redeemer Bible Church. If the Lord has been uh, prompting you to do that, there are some uh, things to fill out. There, it's just a very simple form to fill out. You put it in the offering box in the back, and we'll get back to you and get that process rolling. Uh, and we would love for you to <clears throat> commit to us and give us the opportunity to commit to you as well. Uh, Exodus chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the, the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then I will take you for myself, for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. 
I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. This morning, the title of this sermon is What It Means to Be God's People. What It Means to Be God's People. And this is part one of multiple parts, uh, multiple sermons. Uh, We're going to be drawing from this passage over and over again. Uh, This passage is actually understood uh, to be uh, the summary statement of all of Exodus. If you can boil down Exodus to one passage, it is this passage. And theologians agree on this. It, it, It more or less contains the entire theological message of the entire book. The central message of Exodus contains four central biblical themes. There are, of course, other themes that come up throughout the book and several things to learn from the book, but these four themes keep coming up over and over again and are emphasized in this book. One is the knowledge of God. Two is the covenant people of God. Three is the promised land. And four is deliverance from bondage. And so those are the four parts that will be part of this, I guess you could say, series within a series, looking at what it means to be God's people. To be God's people is to have a knowledge of God. It is to be in covenant relationship to God. It is to be um, possessors of a promise for the, uh, the future by God. And it is to be delivered, from God, delivered by God from bondage. That's what it means to be God's people. But this morning we're going to be looking at the knowledge of God. You know, I love those uh, videos. I mentioned this before, I think. Those videos online, you've seen them, where somebody has been born colorblind. um, And, uh, you know, they've gone through their whole life not seeing color the way, you know, the, the rest, most of the population does. And so, you know, you'll, you can imagine being that person growing up colorblind, you know, uh, hearing about uh, what a sunset looks, looks like, all the colors within a sunset, uh, hearing about the vibrance of a red rose, or hearing about the different hues and the beauty of a rainbow. I could imagine that uh, having that kind of experience would be difficult because you're trying to really understand and appreciate these beauties of nature that God has created. But yet, in God's sovereignty, you are somewhat hindered in truly appreciating it to the level that God intends in the creation. Now, I've seen in these videos where Somebody like that that has that history, all you know, is given a gift. Usually, it's for their birthday, and you know, they open the gift, and it's a pair of sunglasses, and they think oh, it's just a pair of sunglasses. But they, everybody, urges them, put it on, put it on, put it on, and they make sure that they're at a park or something like that with green grass and and blue skies and all those things. So the person puts on the sunglasses on, and then I love that reaction. Actually, the first time I saw that reaction, saw one of those videos, I just broke down in tears. Because it, reminds, it reminded me of, of us as believers. 
walking through life and never truly seeing and appreciating creation and God the way he is to be enjoyed. But then finally, the Spirit regenerating me, giving life and giving me eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to, to know relationship with God. And those first moments of that relationship uh, are, are like those first moments that that person has putting on those special glasses and finally being able to see green grass, blue skies, beautiful sunsets, marvelous rainbows. God wants to be known. He wants us as his people to know him, to know who he is, what he's like. But not only that, he not only wants us to understand mentally what he's like and who he is, but to experience what he's like. And who he is, and that is the um, the idea of enjoying him. It's been asked throughout the years of the church, what's the chief end of man? It's to know God and and enjoy Him forever. And we're going to be looking at those two purposes of man to. Know God, but not just to know about God, but to know God. And in that experiential, personal knowing of God, relating to God, we enjoy Him. That's why we were made. And that's what this passage is, is getting at. That's what Exodus uh, is emphasizing over and over again. First of all, you must know the true God, Christian. And friend, if you don't know him this morning, you must know the true God. Notice uh, in this passage the repetition of God describing himself and recounting his, his name. <clears throat> Verse 2, God further, spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Verse 3, by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Verse 6, I am the Lord. Verse 7, you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Verse 8, at the very end, I am the Lord. Over and over and over again, it's repeated. If you were with us last hour in our equipping hour, this is that stop sign to stop, pull over, and look around. This repetition of the name Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is the name of God, Yahweh, I am, is the best translation for it. God has revealed himself as Yahweh. He has revealed himself as the, the great I am. That is the uncreated, self-sustaining, and all-sufficient one. If we can sum up I am in a few statements, and you really can't, but if you try, 
is that he is uncreated, self-sustaining, and therefore all-sufficient. This is how he is to be known by his people. Notice that this is how he wants to be addressed. In the previous chapter, when Moses asked God, when I go to your people and and I tell them God wants to save you, who should I tell him you are? God says, I am. Tell them, I am. Tell them, Yahweh has sent you. The uncreated, self-sustaining, all-sufficient one is the one who has sent Moses and is the one who desires to deliver his people out of bondage from Egypt. God even says it explicitly himself in verse 3. This is how he wants to be known right now. I've made myself known in other ways, in other names, as it were, before. But right now, this is how I want you to know me. Moses and the Israelites within Egypt. Notice in in verse 3 that it's actually God who initiates his revelation of himself. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So it was God's prerogative. It was his, his uh, sovereign, uh, uncoerced, unforced action to reveal himself to the fathers and to Moses and Israel. He decides when somebody truly comes into relationship with him. He decides who we understand him to be. God is the one who sets the terms of our experience of him, our relationship with him, and our understanding of him. We as human beings do not have the liberty to fabricate our own version of God. Many people do that. They say, well, my God wouldn't do that or allow this. My God is like this. And often, if that person goes on to explain their God, they're just explaining who they think they are. Usually in that self-fabrication of their own false God, they are really worshiping themselves. And they've fallen back into the time-old sin of idolatry. Rather... We must accept God. We must worship Him. We must relate to Him as He truly is. And if He, if he discloses, reveals Himself to us a certain way, God is truth. And so therefore we can trust the way that He discloses Himself to us that that is really who He is. So as you scour the pages of Scripture and learn about the nature and the character of God, you can trust that that is who God truly is. And you must accept every facet of his being, not picking and choosing like some buffet line. We as human beings cannot come to know this God in the normal ways that we would employ to know another human being. Rather, we are dependent on God to reveal himself to us. 
we must come to know God on his terms in the way he determines. Turn with me to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. And I don't hear any pages turning. I hope it's I hope it's swiping. <clears throat> I hope that's the reason. Uh, Romans one, verses nineteen through twenty, says because that which is known about God is evident within them. That is the unrighteous, for God made it evident. To them, how did God make himself known? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You see, God has already displayed much about himself through what is called general revelation. General, general revelation is just a fancy way of saying nature, creation. It's everything that God has made. When God made all of nature, all of creation, he intended for it to speak of him, to reveal certain things about him. We see here that it reveals, among the many things, it reveals his power, his divine nature. We can see the goodness and the greatness and the eternal power and this divine nature, this otherness of God in all of creation. We see the design in the world. We see the design all the way down to the, the smallest atom, the smallest part of the world, and we we must come to the conclusion this must have a designer. It cannot be by chance. There must be a divine architect behind the structure we see all the way down to the finest detail. God created all things to point to him so that it would give him glory. Creation, in fact, declares the glory of God. Isaiah 40, 26 says, Lift up your eyes, Excuse me, Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Nature declares the glory of God. Not only that, but creation declares the power of God. Isaiah 40.26 Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, none of them is missing. Why is not one molecule, one star, one planet out of orbit? Why is the universe not spinning in perpetual chaos? It's because of the power of God holding it all together. Not only this, but creation declares the wisdom of God. Psalm 104.24 O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. See the wisdom of God in nature. Yet back in Romans 1, despite all that revelation, 
All of the things that we know about God that's clear, unavoidable in the heart of all mankind, righteous and unrighteous, we are told nonetheless that man has rejected the very God that they can see plainly in creation around them. How does this happen? Well, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's how. Mankind has suppressed the truth. They have held the truth down that keeps bubbling up to the surface as they look around them at nature and and nature screams that they are accountable to a greater God than them. There is somebody greater than them, a God that they must answer to. And the unrighteous man suppresses that, holds that, those cries down. We have voluntarily shut our eyes from seeing and acknowledging that there is a God who created all of these things. We do it because we love our sin. We, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. Therefore, man is without excuse. Look at verse 20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God wrote himself into creation, as it were, so that even those people that are on the fringes of society has no excuse for not worshiping God. Man is without excuse in their rebellion against him. And therefore we see that playing out in their lives, out in society. Instead of turning to God in repentance and worship, mankind has sold out God for idols. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. In their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures and iPhones and checks in the mail and bank accounts and relationships and fame, and possession, and the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's what we do. We exchange anything and everything else for God. We trade Him in for what is nothing more than tinsel. That tinsel that you put on that Christmas tree, it looks so shiny, but it's worthless. That's the things of the world. It's tinsel. Left to ourselves, every single member of the human race is absolutely unable to rightly understand who God is and how to be right with Him. Our foolish hearts are darkened. If man were to try to know God's ways apart from special revelation, apart from God stepping in and revealing Himself, the result would be total and complete error. 
1 Corinthians says that in, our, in the wisdom of man, they, they grasp and they try to get to God, but they cannot get to him. They cannot understand him in all their wisdom. God must reveal himself to us. Man cannot know God or be right with him unless God discloses this to them. The only way, the only way that we can properly know about God and know him personally is if he first reveals himself to us. We are dead in our sins, friends. You need him to take the first step. And praise be to the God of all grace, because that's exactly what he did. He stepped in. God has revealed himself personally throughout history, And then he has preserved that revelation for us in the pages of Scripture. So that though we may not be walking alongside Moses and seeing the burning bush, we can see it in the pages of Scripture. And it's real today as it was then. It's as true today as it was then. Because it's the same God. And he is still alive. God has given us the Bible, Scripture, His Word, by which we are now able, of course by the Spirit's enablement, we are now able to know God. We're given a a book that discloses things that we would otherwise not know about God. It goes beyond just general revelation, what we can see in the clouds and the trees. It goes beyond that. And it shows us who the Creator is and what He's like. That's what you hold in your hands, Christians. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That's how God spoke. He spoke long ago to the fathers. And the way that He spoke to the fathers was through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Here are some ways. Deuteronomy 18.18. God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's how God spoke to his people, was through prophets. He would put his words in their mouth. That's what he did with Moses. Moses was the first prophet of God. Jeremiah 1.9, the prophet Jeremiah uh, describes for us that experience of, of God putting his words into his mouth. It says, Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, the prophet Jeremiah says. Numbers 12.6, it was not only in this direct revelation, but Number 12, 6 describes visions and dreams where God says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Those are the modes of revelation. That's how God revealed himself, communicated to his people throughout time. And it was recorded in Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians 2.10 The Apostle Paul says, To us, 
God revealed them through the Spirit, the things of God. God has revealed the things of God, the wisdom of God, through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 2.10 is the Holy Spirit is God. He knows the very depth of God because he is God. And the Holy Spirit has communicated to us, the apostles, uh, the things of God, the wisdom of God, the explanation of Jesus Christ. And we have written it down in the pages of Scripture. Paul himself describes this in Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. That's what the Spirit reveals. The Spirit's main emphasis is not himself. It's Christ. Every time you see the Spirit showing up in the New Testament, he is is simply a spotlight onto Christ, shining upon him, revealing him. And so a ministry that is marked by the Holy Spirit is a ministry that is Christ-centered. And that's what the Spirit does. Because Christ is God. As the Spirit reveals Christ, He reveals God to us. And the way He does that are in the pages of God's Word. He has written it for you, friend, so that you would know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. You have to know him. And if you want to know him, you have to go here. You have to go to the word of God. You can't just create your own God. You have to know God on his terms. And for us today, the terms are, know me through Christ. But it's not enough to know about God. You must truly know God. That's the second point this morning. You must truly know God. Back in Exodus chapter 6, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, verse 2. Verse 3, I, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. God revealed himself to Moses and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he revealed himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. Genesis 17, 1, God reveals himself to Abram. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham or Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Genesis 28, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, May God Almighty bless you. So Isaac understood God as God Almighty as well. Genesis 35, 10 and 11, God said to 
Jacob, your name is Jacob, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, all knew God as God Almighty, the all-powerful one. This mountainous God. This God who is not limited in his power. Who creates mountains. Causes them to fall. It's not that this name Yahweh, I am. It's not that that name was never spoken or known before. Seems like it was. But... What he's saying here in verse uh, 2 and 3 is the way in which God related to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the way that he related to these men, the way that those men experienced God in their life was as the Almighty God, the God of great power, the God of great might. So what we see in Genesis is the power of God on display over and over again in these men's lives. But now, but now, Moses and, and God's people would come to know God not just as God Almighty, but as I am. That is, they would come to know God personally, but not simply as a God who would you know, just step in with his great power and deliver them or do great and awesome things. Not just that. Now they would know him personally as the God who is everything they could ever need. Not just a God who gets them out of a bad situation. But the God who delivers them out of that bad situation and then, and then stays with them. Becomes their, the living water that they live off of. Becomes their shelter, their provider, their protector their shepherd through the wilderness. You see, as, we, as we'll see Exodus unfold, God is, is disclosing himself as more than just this source of power, more than just uh, some, some deity that is more powerful than humans. No, he is the I am. And as the I am, he is uncreated. He is self-sustaining. And he is all-sufficient. He's everything that his people could ever need. Amen. You see, to know God is not only to know facts about God. It is to know him. It's not simply facts, doctrines, verses, and information. Of course, all of these things are essential, of course, to knowing God. But reading a book about flying a plane... Is not the same as flying a plane. <laughs> Reading a movie star's biography is not the same as being their childhood friend. Reading and learning data points in the Bible about God is not the same as knowing Him. Do you know Him? Not do you know about him. 
Do you know him? Have you experienced him as everything you could ever need? Job 42. Job 42, 5 and 6. Job points out the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Uh, Job is a catalog of... uh, Some people would say Job is on trial through this book. Actually, God is on trial in the book of Job. Because remember, at the very beginning, Satan comes to God and accuses God that this man Job only follows you because you make life easy for him. You're not a God worth following in the hard times. That's the accusation. And so the rest of Job is this... is is mankind wrestling with this tension. Yes, God rewards those who seek Him and who live righteously, of course. But sometimes things happen in their life in God's sovereign allowance where it's not blessing, where it doesn't feel like blessing, where it feels like trial. But yet God's people, if they are truly God's people, they don't turn their back on God. Because he's worthy. Because of who he is. Now Job describes here in verses 5 and 6, this is, at, this is towards the end of Job. Uh, this is the last chapter of Job. And now we're getting to the conclusion of things. And for Job, His conclusion, one of the things that he learns here in the process, in verse 5, I have heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Amazing. It's one thing to hear about God, to know about God, to know facts. It's an entirely other thing to know him personally. And Job describes that difference here. It's a difference difference between hearing of God and then seeing God. Is that you? Do you just know stuff about God? Have you just heard about Him? Or have you seen Him with the eyes of your heart? Has He opened your spiritual eyes to see Him and truly appreciate Him for who He is? This seeing God is to come into a personal relationship with God. And this begins, this personal relationship with God, this Christian life begins with a personal encounter with the one true God. I mean, Job knew plenty about God, right? I mean, he, you could say he filled the pew every Sunday. He, he grew up. He went through the, the programs. He knew the information. One example after hearing his own children had all died in a tragic event at the beginning of this book, Job recalls the sovereignty of God. His answer to tragedy is a sovereignty of God. He knew his Bible. Well, he didn't have a Bible at that point, but he knew his God. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. 
He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Bless the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the devil doesn't come and snatch away. The Lord takes away. He might use the means of the devil or the the world or the flesh. But it's all under his sovereignty. It's all under his control. So the blame goes straight to him, and God will take it. And he's not going to apologize for it. See, that's the thing. He'll take the blame for the tragedy in your life. But he's not going to apologize for it. Because he's doing something that's greater than us. And Job sees that. Now, after his friends, quote-unquote, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, after they all accused Job for deserving such tragedies, Job recalls the power and wisdom of God. He knew about God. Job 12, 13, With him, with God, are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. You know, I, I hear what you guys are saying, but the, the answer lies with God. See, Job knew. He had those data points. Right? He knew the facts about God. He understood these rich, profound truths about him. But that mental understanding about God pales in comparison with coming face to face with the true and living God. He says, I have heard of him, but now I see him in Job 42. We have to also note what's the product of seeing God. In Job 42, verse 5, I have heard of you by the, ear, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. That's a proper response. That's the first step in coming to know God. Repentance. When Job says he retracts here, it means that he despises, he rejects himself. The answer for Job's trials and or his prosperity is not in himself. It's not about him, he's saying. The answer is in God. He's doing something. And so Job repents here for his pride, his, his self-defense that he's displayed in this book. And this is, again, the only right response to a personal encounter with God. It is this humility. We see that in Isaiah 6 with the prophet Isaiah. But this is what it means to know God. A true knowledge of God is, of course, grounded in the truth of Scripture. Your relationship with God is not formed by your emotions or your experiences. Rather, your emotions and your experiences are informed by the truth of the Word of God. God isn't Because we feel. There is not some truth about God that is reality because I feel it is. The truth and reality is recorded for us in Scripture and therefore that controls and produces how I feel. It's the other way. Therefore, the Christian has a biblical and personal, vital, living, experiential relationship with God. It's both. 
you must know the God of the Bible. And you must know him personally. This personal, biblical knowledge of God is what Jesus alludes to in John 17. John 17, 3. Jesus, praying to the Father, says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice it's not, it's not a general knowledge, right? Eternal life isn't knowing a God. Eternal life, true, spiritual, everlasting life is, is not just being religious or believing in this general idea about God. No, this is eternal life, knowing this God. Jesus is speaking to his Father, the one true God, and he says eternal life is knowing you, Father. It's not general. It's specific. It is exclusive. It is to know you, that is the Father of Jesus Christ. It is to know the only true God, not a God of our imagination, as we've been saying. Eternal life is to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent also. Not a Jesus whose existence began 2,000 years ago. Some mere man who was simply a good example of love and charity. That's not eternal life. You don't know him, truly. You must know the true God. You must know the true Christ as, as he has revealed himself in the word of God. But notice, you must know the true God, but you must know the true God. It is this relational, experiential, personal knowing of the only true God and Jesus Christ that is eternal life. You can flip it around, right? If you don't know him, you're dead. And that's what it means to be dead, right? We are, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins apart from God. What does that mean? You are dead to God. You're not a zombie, right? You are spiritually dead in your relationship. We use this terminology all the time. You're dead to me. You know, I'm never going to speak to you again. You went too far, you're dead to me. We all do that with God. Unless he changes us. But for the Christian, we know him. We know him. And that knowing him, that relating to him, that personal knowledge of him is eternal life. The essence of eternal life is to live in communion with God. That's what heaven is. Eternal knowing of him. Eternal experience and, and knowing him and enjoying him forever. That's what eternal life is. That's what heaven is. Heaven is not some nice place that we earn because we're a good person. It's not some eternal vacation from all your works and your toils here on earth. That's not what heaven is. 
Heaven is the eternal bliss of knowing and being known by God. Heaven is, is the eternal living in the presence of Jesus Christ. You see, heaven is heaven because Christ is there. And heaven with no Christ is hell. 2 Corinthians 4. For the believer, we have already begun experiencing that eternal life. Because we have come to know God and His Son. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does this mean? The true believer has been given this this light. This light by God. This light is the light of knowledge. That's what light does, right? Light reveals what was unknown. Light enables us to see. It makes the unknown known. So what is unknown in this verse? It's the glory of God. Mankind on their own do not see God. They do not appreciate His glory. So the glory of God is what is unknown by all mankind. And we cannot and will not and do not want to see that God is glorious, that He is wonderful, awesome, and worthy of our worship. But God shined His light into our hearts so that we can see His glory. But He's not done. One more detail. And it's really the most crucial detail of the verse. Where do we see the glory of God? Where does the light shine so that we can see the glory of God? The face of Jesus Christ. How stunning. How does one come to know and understand and even encounter the glory of God? It's in the face of Christ. Christ reveals the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And there is no other way to truly know God but through Jesus Christ. So come to Him. He died in your place on the cross. He absorbed your wrath that you deserve. And He offers free forgiveness because He already paid the price. You simply have to turn away from yourself, turn away from your sin in repentance and turn to Christ in full, complete faith. That's all you got to do. And He changes you. He changes you so that things will never be the same. You see, man's greatest need is not to know about God, but to know God personally. It's one thing to hear someone describe a sunset or a rainbow. It's another thing to see it for yourself. Have you seen the glory of God? Have you seen the loveliness and the worth of Christ for yourself? Is He the highest prize to you? Is there no one and nothing else above Him? 
If you do not know him this way, you do not have eternal life. But if, in the words of Galatians 4.9, if you have come to know God or rather be known by God, then dear Christian, you are already beginning to enjoy the bliss of eternal life. This is eternal life, knowing God and Jesus Christ, right? So if you know him, you're beginning to experience eternal life already on this side of eternity. But the believer, we wait, don't we? We wait and we long for that day when we will be free from this body of sin so that we might fully know him and fully Enjoy him for all eternity without hindrance or limitation. Oh, what a day that will be. We eagerly await, and while we wait, we invite others. We call others. Come and know my God. Don't just know about him. Know him. Come. Christ has paved the way. Come to him. And know him truly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you. Lord. For revealing yourself. To us. We could not. In all of our efforts. In all of our years. We could not. Make our way to you. We didn't want to. If we're honest, we wanted nothing to do with you, Lord. But you stopped us in our tracks. You hunted us down. And you gave us eyes to see. Oh, Lord, and we've never been the same since. I pray for your people that they would truly know you and truly enjoy you. Oh, God, if we have grown dull to you forgive us that is sin if we take you for granted forgive us that is sin Lord may you be fresh in our lives may you be the vibrant center of our universe we pray in Christ's name Amen